This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Are you looking for peace of mind? You won't find it in your status line. But are you trying to prove? Whose mountain are you trying to move? Well, it must be 420 somewhere. That's all I can think. That was Contact High from Alan Stone, A-L-L-E-N Stone. Of course, you could find him at alanstone.com because, as you know, everyone on planet Earth has a .com. Uh, welcome, everyone. Welcome back. I'm welcoming myself back, damn it. That's how welcoming I am in this moment. I've even welcomed myself back. Uh, it's been a while. It's been a while. It's been, uh, it's been a good while. It's been a good while. We don't know how long that actually is, but it feels right. I think about the amount of time we've been away is a good while. We all needed a break. We all needed time to go off, do things to do. Do things to do. Yeah, yeah, I clearly needed more time to work on my speaking skills. 
welcome back. This is our first show of 2014. Here we are. Feels good to be back. Feels good to be by the microphone. I uh, have uh, been busy writing lots of words. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, we here in Los Angeles have been busy skipping winter. Uh, it's been in the 70 degrees area up to 80s for the last three weeks. It's been very weird. I mean, you know, we get a couple of days in the 70s this time of year. And it's usually on January 1st when everyone's watching the Rose Bowl parade and everyone thinks, oh my God, it's 75 in LA. Why don't we live there? And then the next year, 20,000 new people live here. Um, And we're normally uh, not happy about that because They've added lanes to the 405 freeway here, and it doesn't matter. They keep adding lanes, and the cars keep filling them up. There's got to be some sort of effect. Someone's name is named after that, the something effect. You know, the more lanes you build, the more they drive on them. I don't know what that is. Uh, but, uh, But it's been weird here. There's no winter, and there's no rain. There's no rain. There's no water. There's no snowpack in the Sierras. It's... Uh, <laughs> And there's no global warming, of course, <clears throat> uh, but we won't be getting into that today. That'll be – we might get into that actually. That could be an interesting – I'm going to write a note right now for my <laughs> my guest. We'll need to figure out how that fits into all of this research. Um, anyway, I hope you guys were great. I hope you had a very nice holiday season. Uh, had good you know, time with your family or at least um, you endured – your time with your family. But isn't it weird? It's January 21st. And like, I'm talking about the holidays. The holidays were like 10,000 years ago already. It's only been three weeks, people. Four weeks, whatever. And it seems like a millennium ago. Um, Isn't that weird? That's so weird that just these three weeks have gone by and we've completely just thought, you know what? It's over. We don't. I saw, um, okay, first of all, down the street, there's somebody with still Christmas decorations on in their house it's that's there's some alcoholism going on in that house I'm pretty sure of it because one year my mother had the Christmas tree up until February and there was alcoholism in our house at the time I need to make a note of that too and put that in the chapter I'm working on right now (laughs) Um, and I did see that people had thrown their Christmas trees away finally last Sunday and I thought wow really that's that's a long time to have the Christmas tree and that's a fire hazard at that point especially with the fact that there's no rain here. We've had a fire already here in Los Angeles County uh, it's this month, and it's not even supposed to be fire season. But it's fire season all year long here. Uh, so between the earthquakes and the fire season, um, you shouldn't move here. Don't move here. It's just because there's nice weather means nothing else. There's It's pure evil otherwise, according to all those fine people who decide that the reason we have earthquakes is because we're sinners. Don't understand that. But um, so there's pure evil here. You don't want to be here anyway, just because it's happened to be, I don't know, what was it today? Like 78 degrees today or something ridiculous like that. Although the fog's rolling in now. Oh, maybe a little bit. We'll see. Uh, anyway, so I hope you guys had good holidays. Uh, we had fine, very mellow holidays here. Nothing exciting. Nothing big. Nothing, nothing extraordinary happened here. Um, there were no prophets born or messiahs or anything like that. Just a few nice gifts exchanged. Some good vinyl. Got some vinyl for the collection. Um, and uh, and comic books. Found a comic book store and kind of um, 
have a new thing. <laughs> Bought really cool comics for um, Bob for Christmas. And of course, I still haven't read them all. So vinyl and comic books. Uh, and we're not even Brooklyn hipsters. I don't even know how that happened. We are nice middle-aged people living here in the fine, fine neighborhood near LAX. Um, not a hipster within miles, actually, of this neighborhood, I don't think. Well, down in Venice. You have to go down to Abikini. They're all down there now. Uh, so anyway, uh, welcome everyone. Very excited to be back. Uh, we're going to be doing things a little differently here uh, the next nine months or so. I'm only going to be doing two shows a month uh, because I am writing a lot. And this show, even though it sounds like I'm just making up as I go along, and for the most part I am, uh, I, it does take a certain amount of psychic energy and space. And I and I want to respect the show enough that I don't just want to show up and stumble through it. So I need to do it twice a month. So what I've decided is once a month, I'm going to have a fabulous guest on and we're going to speak about some fabulous topic like we have today. And then the second show of the month, we will have the octagon table discussion and we will have a group of really silly people talking about a deep subject and hopefully making you laugh and think and if appropriate, cry. All right. I've got an essay for you, though. I've, you know, I've written lots of words lately on my book. Oh, did I tell you? I have a book deal? Yeah, I told you that last month. Anyway, I have a book deal. I'm writing my book, writing a memoir. So I wrote a little essay today about it. Well, you know, it's always, the essays are always for us together, but, you know. All right. Uh, this essay is called Deadline. In the last seven weeks, I have written 22,615 words, so you'll have to excuse me today if I don't know what to say or write or talk about here in this particular space. Oh, I know. Let's talk about how amazing it is that there are abilities inside of you and me right now that we don't even know we have. Right this very moment, you have ways of being and ways of doing that are fully formed, waiting to be utilized, maybe even raring to go, and yet you don't have a clue about them because you aren't being that way or doing that thing right this moment. You are being the you that you've been being since what might feel like the beginning of time. There are just ways you are and ways you aren't. And if there are any new ways you'd like to be, well, that's just too bad because that's going to take too much work, too much effort, too much time. For the last 14 years or so, I have done my fair share of writing, but not a whole lot. I mean, I wrote papers in grad school when they were due. For some people, the prospect of having to write for grad school keeps them away from plunging into the experience. For me, I was happy to do it. It wasn't very creative, but the acts of shaping ideas, expressing myself, and solving creative problems were all there, and this made me very happy. Also during the last 10 years... I would write a personal essay occasionally for a spoken word show, but that was about twice a year, maximum. Mostly, I would just recycle the material for an audience that didn't know me well. I really didn't think I had it in me to write that often or that much about my life. I always felt blank when I'd come across the idea of what to write about. I did write my solo show three years ago, but that was over months and months, talking most of it out, piecing existing works in and rewriting little chunks here and there, and it, it never felt onerous. Nothing in my experience told me that I was capable of or would even want to write two to four hours a day, almost every day. 
I thought that after 45 minutes of writing, I'd have to retire to my fainting couch to replenish what had been drained from my soul that day. I imagined that my constitution was just too fragile to handle that many words, let alone the emotions behind them in one single day. The creative process is a precious thing, and one must not handle it too much or too often. So, what changed me? Deadlines. Deadlines. Let's just start with the word. Deadline. My poking about the Google revealed that it was once an actual line that would make you dead if you crossed it. Prisoners in the American Civil War POW camps were told that if they crossed a line, usually just made in the dirt on the edge of the encampment, the guards would shoot them dead. Dead line. As in, don't enter that space on the other side of that line or you are dead. In the early 20th century, rough-and-tumble newspaper editors used it to convey urgency to their writers so that they knew exactly when their articles had to be in or they would be dead and not make it into that day's edition due to the paper having to go to print. Deadline. As in, don't go past that time, the other side of that line, or your piece is dead. And that level of urgency is exactly what one needs when it comes to doing things that are outside of our comfort zones. If you don't feel like there is some life or death element to getting it done, then all of the forces that maintain your inner status quo win. All of the voices in your head that tell you that it's not worth it or good enough or that you don't have it in you sit down in the front row of your mind, have a few too many drinks and become the hecklers from hell. What needs to happen is you need to be more afraid of not making that deadline than the shitheads in the front row. Some part of you needs a little fight or flight to snap out of the heckling reverie and get your ass in gear. A touch of fear is not always a bad thing. But more than fear, you need to know that you can do it. Whatever type of project or challenge is ahead of you, you need to know that just like those fucktard hecklers in your mind in the front row that want to keep you from your project, there are just as many and most probably even more parts of you that know exactly how to proceed and what is needed to follow through. It's kind of like magic, really. You have a whole untapped universe inside your mind, in your unconscious, that is ready, willing, very able and excited to help you make it happen. When I began to write this book I'm writing, the hecklers showed up pretty fast. They came in the form of what I imagined every other person of import in my life and involved in this project wanted it to be. Lots of voices with lots of opinions, all scrambling my brain and elevating my heart rate. But what was really beautiful was that another voice also showed up, and it was louder and stronger than those hecklers. It said to me, you can do this. You know how to do this. And a calm came over me, and I knew that this voice was not lying to me, even though I could not see the entire path that would lead me to getting it all done. But I did know that there were vast reservoirs inside of me that were waiting to be tapped, and I was willing to trust that they were there even if my conscious mind was not involved. I was willing to trust that voice. I was willing to trust myself. And so every day, I do. 
And so I say to you, you can do this. You know how to do this. was another Alan Stone song, Nothing to Prove. You know, uh, Loken comes in here, he picks the music, he doesn't know what I'm going to do. He has never knows what essay I'm going to, he doesn't know what the subject matter, he doesn't, he doesn't even know my guest today. And yet, through the power of the mind, he picks the perfect songs. And we want to thank Alan for letting us play this uh, music on, uh, on our little show here. He just got signed by a big old label. And he's just 
busting out and becoming all big and famous. And <laughs> we play him here because we're so damn groovy. All right, everyone, welcome back. I'm excited about my guest today. Um, uh, I'm just going to jump right in, and then we're going to talk about the fabulous pithiness of all of this stuff. My guest is a gentleman named Avi Tushman. Tushman? Tushman. Oh, yes. my phone's beep, beep, beeping. And um, uh, Avi has written a book called Our Political Nature, The Evolutionary Origins of What Divides Us. And Avi and I met on uh, Anna Kasparian's show, The Point, about six weeks ago. We were both on the panel. And Avi is a political anthropologist who, at the age of young age of 23, went down to South America and to Peru and ended up becoming an advisor to the First Lady of Peru and traveled to remote areas and met with Native people and researched uh, their needs and what was going on and how to, the state could help them and what was – I mean he was just a true anthropologist. And then afterwards he came back and he went back to Stanford, went to grad school and then he went back to Peru and um, has worked with numerous people. And his his passion is political anthropology. And uh, he's written this book. And I, I, you know, normally I don't introduce guests this way, but I just wanted to read these kind of three little paragraphs here, which are on your website about the book, because it really kind of holds everything for us. And then you and I can jump off and go wherever we want. But um, I believe Mr. Avi wrote this. He says, we are living through an especially divisive moment in history, which, hello, folks, listeners of this show, we talk about this all the time. Our political, social, and economic landscape is increasingly fractured, and a vast chasm seems to separate people on the left from people on the right. Likewise, many Americans are worried and confused about the explosive political upheavals in places like Syria, Egypt, North Korea, and Iran. Time and again, too, our government has been caught flat-footed or on the wrong side of history. We must find a new way to comprehend these problems at a much deeper and more objective level. There are three questions that are absolutely fundamental to how we understand the future of our country and our world. What are the root causes of our debilitating left-right divide? And where do our political orientations really come from? And how can we predict the eruption of political instability in flashpoints around the globe? Today's commentators would have us believe that our political behavior comes from our views about the main issues of the day, such as Obamacare, or from our economic circumstances, or our lifetime affiliations with this political party or that. This is wrong, or at least incomplete. For the last 10 years, I've been researching the puzzle of political orientation, both during my career advising heads of state on shaping public opinion and during my doctoral work in evolutionary anthropology at Stanford. During this inquiry, I've drawn together dozens of cutting-edge insights from neuroscience, primatology, and genetics, and they lead to this revealing conclusion. Our political orientations are deeply ingrained natural dispositions molded within each of us by powerful evolutionary forces. Okay, po- folks, put that in your fucking pipe and smoke it today. <laughs> Welcome, Avi. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Kelly. I'm so excited you're here. Uh, this is good, deep, juicy stuff that you've written about. I mean, and... You've made it – the book is so lovely because it's it's deep and it's thorough and yet extremely entertaining. You've got great examples of 
contemporary life and history and your style's very easy to read. And so even though this sounds pithy to everyone out there, it's uh, it's you really lay it out very nicely for us. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So some of the things that I loved about this book and um, just to let you listeners know, I, I read about I got about a third of it th- th- through a third of it. Um, just ran out of time and was kind of um, just looking at the big picture today. But there's some things that um, I really loved about this because there's some things that it really answered for me, which are things that we talk about on this show a lot, which one of which is why do people always vote against their economic interests? You know, that's one big one. And then the other one, this is this disparity I always love pointing out to people is that liberals are okay with the government regulating certain things, but not okay with the government regulating other things. And then with the conservatives, it's you could just switch those things, basically, you know, it's like, you can regulate my wife's vagina, but don't regulate when and where I can use my gun. (laughs) And with the liberals, it's like, you can, you know, you can regulate polluters, but don't regulate my personal vagina. Um, so, so I want to jump into some of these things. Um, one of which is, uh, first of all, I wanted to know how did you how did you get involved in this subject matter? I mean, you I know you went to Peru and you were an anthropologist on the ground there, and you were studying things and you're a cultural anthropologist. But what is it about this particular topic and this divisiveness that you you know that that brought you to the table here? Well, I first became interested in this topic by accident, actually by stumbling into it. Uh, When I was in college, I was actually an anthropologist, and I was interested in very esoteric topics. So I'd go down every summer to the Andes, and I was actually researching humor in a native language called Quechua. (laughs) And (laughs) this was a lot of fun. I was very adventurous at the time. But then one totally unforeseen day, I graduated. And I had to, <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. And I had to find a real job. Uh-huh. Now, my skill set was totally useless to the dot-com billionaires in my own native Silicon Valley. Yes. Um, so things looked a little bleak. But it really didn't take too long before I found my first job in Lima, Peru. And the people who hired me were a political risk consulting firm. Hmm. Now, that's like a big non sequitur. What on earth would they want this expert on Quechua humor for? Yes. <laughs> well, it turns out that the biggest investments in Peru are in gold and copper and gas. And there are often indigenous people around these natural resources. Sure. When you have social conflicts that could spin out of control, it would put billions of dollars of returns at risk. So here I was at um, the tender age of 22, traveling to the far corners of Peru, and I got uh, to see some of these conflicts up close, which were quite nasty. Mm. I I remember at one point I was working around the second largest gold mine in the world, Mm. and I was trying to resolve the the conflict about whether or not to expand um, in a way that would be satisfactory to both sides. Right. But the deeper I looked at the problem, um, the more shocked I was at how radically different people's political perceptions were. There's almost no way to bridge the gap. Um, And at the time, I should mention, Peru was just recovering from an internal war between Mm -hmm. 
uh, Maoist insurgency with groups like the Shining Path, mm-hmm. and then you had the, the army in between them, uh, we now know that almost 70,000 people were killed. Wow. So things were very tense um, in these areas and uh, actually quite dangerous. I bet, yeah. And um, so that really showed me different parts of human nature. And I saw how one side's idea of evil was the other side's idea of good and vice versa. <laughs> right. Um, hmm, know, that doesn't sound familiar at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. At, at the time, I never imagined that political polarization in our own country would reach such dangerous levels. Um, but I did become completely... Uh, fascinated uh, and it, it started off as a search for truth mm-hmm. so I, said, I decided then and there that I had to go back to school to graduate school to look for scientific answers to this puzzle of political orientation and when you just when you just started delving into the subject it seems like it would be something that people had been studying since we'd been studying I mean we studied every other aspect of humanity and uh, you know, and I know you wanted to do it from a, a a very scientific point of view, not a philosophical or psychological point of view. Did you find that there was a lot of research already that a lot of people had dedicated their lives to this question? Absolutely. Of course, people have been writing about political philosophy since the ancients right. for, for thousands of years. And then political psychology really took off I would say, in a major way, after the Second World War, um, during the a process called denazification in particular, because mm-hmm. the Allies had to rebuild Europe and they had to staff the new civilian government. So you had psychiatrists brought in from the UK and the United States to figure out um, who were the right government who were, officials. Who were really the Nazis and who right. weren't the Nazis. Yeah, yeah, and who, yeah. at the time, they were actually very nervous that there would be a resurgence of Nazism. Mm. Um, which is a little strange to think about um, right now, but uh, I guess that was what they were really concerned about. So they wanted to find out who wouldn't even be susceptible to these fascist tendencies. Um, So there's a tremendous amount of research that was done, and it was all in the kind of psychological paradigm of the day, which was um, all psychodynamic. And Mm -hmm. um, I read everything I could find in the library about this, which is absolutely fascinating and informative. But at a certain point, I really ran up into a wall, and I realized that I'd have to dig much deeper for the answers I wanted, right? Because uh, it's this hermetic system. Uh, at a certain point, well, what, what is ethnocentrism? Um, can, can you touch it? What, you know, where is it in your brain? Right. Um, and I, I found social science in general was running into a wall. Social scientists were kind of content to say um, people are just human nature is tribalistic, and it's basically like that everywhere, and it's irrational, and we know better. End of story. <laughs> and that's just the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> and you were like, no, but I want to know really why it's that way. Right. Yeah. And it was just wasn't explained. And at the time, I was doing my PhD in evolutionary anthropology, so I was really encouraged to, to dig deeper. And that's exactly what I did. I looked into fields like neuroscience, genetics, and primatology, and as you mentioned, and I saw that, in fact, there were some incredible studies, but there were a couple of problems. For one, these studies were buried in these academic journals, mm. some of the top, most prestigious journals in the world, to be sure. But they were very dry, and they were hiding these um, fascinating findings. And very few of them had percolated up into the mainstream media, and people had only heard maybe one or two. Um, and that brings me to the second problem, which is that nobody had really connected them. 
Uh-huh. In fact, even now um, that there been more attention, quite a bit more attention, uh, the unique thing about our political nature is it's the only book written by an evolutionary anthropologist or even an evolutionist. So I've really tried to pull them all together under that overarching framework that unites all of the life sciences, mm-hmm. which is evolutionary theory, and to do it in a, a very rigorous and serious way. Um, unfortunately, there are, it's all too easy for people, um, especially academics, uh, outside of evolutionary theory, just to kind of imagine how certain behaviors may have been advantageous once upon a time. Right. And um, it's always fine to speculate if you realize you're speculating and you can't do it in a, a better way, but it, it's, it's also dangerous. So, um, again, I've tried to have very rigorous data mm-hmm. and really show how differences in evolutionary fitness, which means different rates of survival and reproduction, are connected to this variation in our, our human personalities and how that affects our political behavior. And, of course, this ties into uh, demographic trends and evolutionary drivers that are affecting um, us today. So, so, to- so, so what you're saying is, and what you say in this book, is that this, this right-left spectrum that we have politically, that is what one thing you've early on in the book show is that it's a universal thing that every civil, every political system of any, of any kind has some sort of right left bell shaped thing <laughs> going that this is, um, this is in our cells. This is in our, this has been shaped by millions of years of evolution of, of our species and and other species too that you, mm-hmm. you go into Absolutely. that that this isn't just based on like you said uh, the fact that we're in a cultural war right now or that the economy is bad or that um, we're um, we're a democracy or um, you know or that you know agriculture or something like that that this is this is, goes way beyond human history even that this is in, in our bones a hundred percent and throughout the book I try to show parallel examples from non-human animals and primate societies to show how the same underlying conflicts that are reflected in differences in our personality show up in other animals. For example, we can even find rudimentary political personalities, so to speak, in chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. Um, That sounds almost crazy, but what do I mean? Well, chimpanzees are the only other animal where we found all five of the major dimensions that biologists use to describe the human personality. Now, a a few of these five, um, like extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, they found across about some 20 species of other mammals and primates. Wow. But a trait like openness is a little bit more rare. Uh It's only partially present in the semi-social orangutan, and full conscientiousness has only been found in humans and chimpanzees. Now, I should mention these last two traits, openness and conscientiousness, are precisely the ones that are uh, have a very strong relationship with left-right voting across cultures. Um, as you mentioned, these the, the political spectrum is a natural phenomenon. We find it in all human populations. And it's just that our perception isn't really fine-tuned to look at certain perspectives. Um, 
over long periods of time, to be right. sure. Yes. Which is why it's hard to, to understand um, how these processes are unfolding at, at the evolutionary level and even at, at just the demographic level. Like we wake up one day and we're, we're surprised in the course of our own lifetime that the, the face of our country looks very different than <laughs> it did. And mm-hmm. therefore, attitudes have changed um, in all kinds of ways. Um, and as, as you mentioned, this spectrum is everywhere. Uh, sometimes it's hard to see because it is flexible. So it, if the, a country is under a lot of economic stress or other tensions, it, it can flatten and you'll see a broadening. You'll find more extremism. And we even saw that here in our country a little bit with the fallout from the 2008 yep. um, the recession. global recession. Yeah. But it's, it's essentially the same from country to country. And you can see this uh, underlying structure when you think of certain issues like gay marriage, for example, that are polarizing political spectrums everywhere in the same way. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I want to I want to get into some of these specific issues that are reflected so interestingly in the in the research. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things for me is like it's kind of it feels like a relief in some ways to know that this is just how we're hardwired and that some of us are kind of wired a little more one way and wired a little more the other way and that somehow the species has, you know, we're talking about fitness, you know, mm-hmm. that this is about the species surviving. And so the, each of these, um, e- each of the traits that are found on each side of the spectrum here are important for our fitness as a species. I mean, we need the right and we need the left, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, and, and, and there's some certain things in, in your book, which, um, you spend a, a really big, a long time on looking the research at this, um, the in-group and out-group and, and the breeding of, of, of species and, and why they do that, why they, why they inbreed, you know, and, 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 and how inbreeding is more of a trait of a more conservative type of uh, person or or animal or whatever, and that the people who go into the out groups and, and outbreed are more are a little more are more liberal basically, and yet they both have a really important purpose for a certain population to survive, and um, I I I you know it because I always feel like in this country, whether you're on the left or the right, the thinking is well if those other people over there just went away. Mm-hmm. Everything would be fine because that's what that's because that's what conflict is about. Basically, you're not on my side. You're not you know you're not you don't think like me. Therefore, the planet would be much better if we could just get rid of all you ones who think that way. Mm-hmm. And yet, what I love about this book is that over and over again, it shows that there are actual evolutionary reasons for having people on the left and people on the right and that our political beliefs stem from the real cause of these things which is like like you said you know keeping the species alive fit the fitness right right um so well it brings up a lot of points um one of them is i I should clarify that the way that i look at this is um, th- these traits evolve not so much for the benefit of the species, but uh-huh. uh, more because of the, uh, the the benefit to to individuals. Um, may- maybe I could explain my, my thought. Please do. A yeah, bit. yeah. Please. Um, so, just to start off with the the main argument that I'm showing in the book, um, based on statistics and so on, is that even though you have very different 
surface level issues in, the, in each country that depend on the history and the culture and so on. Underneath it, the, the reflection of these three clusters of measurable personality traits um, universally, right? And, and these have to do with opposing attitudes toward tribalism, um, inequality, and also different perceptions of human nature, whether we see people as more competitive or more cooperative. Um, so if we start with one like tribalism, and this gets into what you're talking about, inbreeding and outbreeding, I, you know, you see everywhere in the world that there's a sort of tri- tribalistic nature of people. And evolutionary anthropologists and casual, um, or sorry, evolutionary psychologists and just casual observers said, oh, human nature is tribalistic, that's the way we are. And um, I think it's not quite correct to think like that because that's generally true, but you're overlooking um, when, you, when people say things like this, the tremendous amount of individual variation, which mm. is absolutely important. And even in the most conservative parts of the world, um, you'll, you'll find people who are tribalistic and, and people who will literally put their life on the line um, to go against that. And there's just a recent example from West Bengal. There was a, a woman from the, uh, I think, I'm forgetting the name, it was a, a tribal group, and then a man from the non-tribal part of society. And, of course, this was a prohibited relationship. And um, it, it ended in a horrible way where the man had to, to pay a fine and the, the woman couldn't pay it. And there was basically, um, she, she was raped by the men in the village. Mm. That, that's an extreme case. And you, you see... Um, people eloping in parts of Afghanistan and, and being, um, you know, stoned to death and mm-hmm. horrible things like this. Um, so, so the point is this, there's a tremendous amount of variation. Right. And this variation is human nature. And mm. so, so when you see in any country people who are more ethnocentric and then people who are more open, um, as an evolutionary anthropologist, my way of, of thinking is, well, why do you have such different personalities? And it's a universal, and, and you can measure it. And um, many of these traits form these natural bell-shaped curves. Right? I mentioned that this political spectrum is like a natural phenomenon in itself. These curves of um, our personality traits, like openness, mm-hmm. they are, are a natural distribution. It looks a lot like height or weight or blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Nothing at all like... Um, income distribution, which is highly skewed toward the lower brackets. Uh, so, so why is this? Um, why is it universal? Why, why is it that even in chimpanzees and other animals, you find different levels of openness that you can measure? And, well, it turns out that in the biology of sexually reproducing species, um, and, and especially ones like social mammals like ourselves, um, there's this fundamental problem of inbreeding and outbreeding. And what I argue in the book is that having these different personalities sort of load the dice in a way. Hmm. It encourages some people to travel away further from home. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see the same thing in, in birds or um, all, all kinds of demographic studies. And it's not related to people's socioeconomic freedoms. At all different levels, when you control for this, you'll still find some people are staying closer to home, some are going further. And this affects the genetic uh, distance between mates. Mm -hmm. And um, I I go to a tremendous amount of time to quantify and graph out all the the trade-offs and fitness on either side. 
Um, so it's basically it's not a coincidence that we find variation in these different parts of our political personality. Uh, one part of this our political personality has evolved to um, kind of regulate this inbreeding and outbreeding that's been going on since time immemorial. And another part that's related to our attitudes toward inequality um, has uh, come about from a whole set of conflict within the family between uh, parents and offsprings and siblings. Um, and and then another part of our political personality has been balancing these social interactions, this um, repeated game theory problems have gone iteration after iteration and uh, where we're trying to balance self-interest against altruism. Mm-hmm. And like you said, there isn't um, an obvious answer every time. Sometimes um, it's good to cooperate and sometimes you have to watch out for your interests. Right. It's like a, a very fine balance. And, um, you know, in some social and ecological environments that our ancestors lived in, a more extreme solution was more adaptive. And that's why we find some people with you know, some, ex- some extreme personalities. But most of us are in the middle, right? actually, because the moderate solution was more frequently um, the more adaptive one. And it's also why we're, we have a fair amount of flexibility. So uh, about half of the variance in our political attitudes comes from environmental, uh, the environment we're in. And the so other we're, half comes from genes. So we're adapting. Uh, so so we're adaptable. You're saying that you know, th- those of us in the middle who are kind of the moderates are more able to go. Oh well, sometimes we need to swing this way, and sometimes we need to swing this way, depending on situation, environment. You know what the challenges we face. Absolutely. Uh, there's some bad news though that I should mention. Oh please. So, <laughs> <laughs> well. Even though most people are in the middle, if you picture that bell curve. Uh huh. Turns out that they're, the people who are further out on the extremes have um, are hugely disproportionately influential in the whole political process. From yes, the electorate. I, I remember learning that in political communication at UCLA. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, it's getting worse. It is. It is the moder. It's yeah. So. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, I, I want to parse down a little bit about what you what you were discussing there, um, because there's these three things that you were talking about, which is um, kind of our relationship to um, tribalism, how comfortable we are with inequality, and then this idea of, of human nature, seeing humans as either more cooperative or more competitive. And um, so what I'm trying to understand is that so the the parts of so the evolutionary that you were talking about the outbreeding and the inbreeding and that there was some you know there's there's just this kind of natural bell curve most people kind of stay at a certain distance and they breed in a certain way and some people or birds or whatever it is dash off 500 feet away or 2 miles or whatever it is to breed over there and and that uh, and and I, I I read a Howard Bloom book and he he talks about bees, how like most of the bees do this kind of one action. And then there's like this really small percentage that goes off and just does their own thing. And then they'll like find a source of food that no one else would have found, Mm -hmm. you know? So there's always like these outsiders or these outliers who are like, I'm going off to do my own thing. And, and who knows, you know, how, how it could benefit uh, the whole from that. Um, But I was thinking about um, 
there's a gentleman named Peter Weibrow. He's the uh, director of the UCLA Neuroscience Institute, and he wrote a book called American Mania. And it's all about addiction to sugar, salt, uh, consumerism, and he talks about the evolutionary underpinnings of all of it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he talks about is that um, the people of America themselves came from people who, for the most part, were willing to risk everything and leave their in-group and go to a land with no promise of anything, with a high risk of survival, whether they're going to survive or not, to to make a new start. And that the genetic disposition of Americans are skewed in such a way that we are people who are always looking for the next thing and need the next hit and want to know what's around the next big corner. And we're the ones that are willing to jump off the skyscrapers and, 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 or get on the boat and leave all of our family and all of our ancestors behind. And, um, and I'm wondering um, uh, just how that might affect our political uh, nature here in this, in this country, you know? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. And, Definitely, it's important to, when we think of a population, not to generalize too much. Of course, we have, um, we're a very large country, and there are some people who came here uh, because of religious persecution, so they were probably a little bit more conservative. But definitely, um, I think I I tend to agree overall that when you have um, people who are willing to take huge risks and travel far away and and be um, immigrants, that, that, that does select unequally for different personality traits. And there's a study in the book, which is fascinating. They looked at different human populations around the world that had undergone long-distance migrations at some part in their past and other groups that had been sedentary forever. And they actually found um, very different, uh, I think, it was uh, dopamine receptors, hmm. uh, one of them in the brain. I think this is something that Peter talks about in his book. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that it is the dopamine. I'm, I'm remembering uh, like the, maybe it was the D4 receptor. Um, but in any case, the take-home point here is that our brains are wired differently between people. And um, sometimes even um, the average in, in a population can be different based on these histories. Mm-hmm. So these people who are compelled to go on these long treks and risk their life. And, and um, you know, this was pretty perilous yeah. back then, once upon a time. Um, they were actually wired in such a way that they needed more stimulation mm-hmm. um, in order to feel mm. the same as someone who just sits at home all day and <laughs> yes. feels all right with that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is a fascinating question and something to... When you think about the American personality, you know, in a general way, obviously, generalizing. Um, so, so, these, so tribalism uh, is made up of really this idea of ethnocentrism versus um, more openness. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, closed down to, you know, we don't, we don't want you in our group to, hey, let's go check out that party over there mm-hmm. type of people. And, um, and so in the um, spectrum between the right and the left, what is the, the overall, how does it skew for 
mm-hmm. for, in, in a political way. Right. So in the book, I've broken down ethnocentrism, I'm sorry, uh, tribalism mm-hmm. into three subcomponents. Mm-hmm. Um, they are ethnocentrism and religiosity. Right. And also uh, sexual tolerance, especially tolerance toward non-reproductive sexuality. But to get back to your question about ethnocentrism, Mm -hmm. um, ethnocentrism is sort of on a spectrum with a a term that I've called uh, xenophilia. Mm -hmm. Um, The opposite of xenophobia. The opposite of xenophobia. Right. I I think that's a a real word. It's it's not used very much, but I I found it uh, very convenient to use to describe people who have an attraction to people from other groups who might see equal or even greater value in mm-hmm. um, other outgroups as opposed to ethnocentric people who see greater value in their own group and tend to be a bit more suspicious um, at, at outgroups. And one of the fascinating things about ethnocentrism that I just remembered is, and I discussed this in our political nature, and this is absolutely ironic, uh, the most ironic and fascinating thing about ethnocentrism is that it's equal opportunity. Hmm. So in other words, if, you, if you're, a, um, I don't know, a, a white American and you score highly on a test that measures anti-black prejudice, mm-hmm. you'll sc- very likely score highly on a test that measures um, anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Or, and we find this all over the world. In Italy, if you, you, know, if you don't like um, immigrants from Eastern Europe, you, you won't like the whatever the out, Africa. right whatever the out group is yeah and the, and the most incredible finding was that I saw was from Israel and it found that the the Israelis who scored very highly in ethnocentrism they had equally negative attitudes toward Palestinians um, and foreign workers from like the the Philippines and immigrants to the former Soviet Union and these groups were are completely different in right um, every way you could think of and, and this was actually study came out during the second intifada Mm. um so that was just amazing and this of course makes no sense and this is the point where social scientists say see i told you so prejudice is irrational and we know better and end of story um but in fact that's a whole other question like why how does that make sense that people have negative views towards groups who are so completely different right anyway you look at them um and of course there's an answer which is that the, the whole function of being more ethnocentric, um, and again, I'm speaking in evolutionary terms. Right. This has nothing to do with morality or the way we normally look at things, but um, if you just step back and look at the planet from outer space, the people with that personality are, are more likely to do not reproduce with any of those groups. It's kind of like a reproductive barrier, and, and then the people on the other end of the spectrum are um, more likely to travel, to be interested, to learn other languages, and of course you can see how that would impact a contentious political issue like immigration. Totally, absolutely. I mean, it would just line right up with (laughs) what we see. Yeah. (laughs) And of course, when we talk about immigration, we talk about immigrants like this monolithic thing. Right. In reality, we've got all kinds of immigrants, some, um, and we really need to have a more rational conversation um, about the real economic impacts and uh, how what what it would be in the interest of our country um, to to develop and grow, and but it's like this 
primordial moral issue that gets in the way. Yeah, we... and it seems like either the ethnocentrism or the xenophilia in it, in some ways, no matter what blinds you, you know, there just becomes a, a bias that happens that, you know, you're you're not able to take in reality information anymore because you're just you're you're committed to not it's not a conscious thought committed but there's this there's just this affiliation that you have either with your group or with with the other mm-hmm. and that it would it seems like it then that becomes the the thing that helps you decide on issues rather than yeah facts Absolutely. And, you know, people have all kinds of unrealistic expectations about people who don't agree with them on these kind of issues. If only they had the right information. And Yes, let's talk about that. Because I, this, is a, if this is the absolute one of the biggest important points I think of all this is if we just think if, if people would just understand. This is like the economic thing, why people vote against their own economic interests. Mm-hmm. If people would just understand that they're voting against their own economic interests, they wouldn't vote that way. But mm-hmm. – you know, you clearly show in the book that economic interest is, is a very small factor in, in the way people vote. Yeah, you know, people are voting against their economic interest almost as commonly as commonly as not. So you just have too many wealthy liberals in places like New York and California, and too many poor conservatives in <laughs> um, some other states that uh, it sort of cancels each other out. Yeah. And, just to give some real concrete examples of this and from our last election, if you look at people's um, family income in America and whether they supported one party or the other in 2012, mm-hmm. you get a very weak correlation of 0.13. Um, so if people were a little bit richer, then there's a slight tendency to vote Republican, but um, hardly impressive or, mm. or predictive. Wow. Now, but it's actually even less than it seems. And the reason is if you take out um, the, if you look at only the, the white Americans, it, it totally disappears, mm. right? You get um, 0.03 correlation, which, which, and it's not even statistically significant. And that's just because there are reasons why other groups um, have have a tendency to vote for more democratically for right. historical reasons or because of being immigrants and that's normal in other countries like Canada you find immigrants also voting for the more liberal parties um but that brings up an important point which is if all you know about an american is that you know they're a white person somewhere and you know their income you you, you might as well flip a coin <laughs> Interesting. To, to figure out how they're going to vote. And yet we put so much <laughs> emphasis on some of these demographic variables. Uh, another one is, you know, male and female. Uh, these are super important to us psychologically for obvious reasons. And we politicize gender mm-hmm. all the time. But if, you know, you have a big group of people and all you know is someone's a man or a woman, um, it's not very helpful at all. Hmm. In fact, there are many issues like feminism. You can find polls where... By accident, you know, men are a little bit more in favor than women. And, you know, w- women are human beings with their own personality ranges. And there's conservative ones and liberal ones. And um, so it's my point here is that it's really critical that we pay more attention to these individual differences. And I, I think most social scientists, um, most economists, and even most evolutionary psychologists are guilty of totally overlooking this, only looking at 
that what the environment does to us or mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. Uh, the rational individual. And in fact, the same people do completely different things in the same environments. Um, and you know, we, not to discount you know, our situation, of course, makes a difference, but um, there's a whole other realm of causation that we need to look at and appreciate to make predictions and understand the world. Yeah, and and one of the ones that really jumped out at me in the book is uh, this tolerance of inequality. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems to be such, you know, when you think about economic interests, um, that, you know, if, if people are skewed more towards uh, an ability to tolerate inequality and, and see that people or believe that people um, – how did you you put it? I think you were connecting. I think you were connecting this. Was that um, uh, that uh, on the right in general, people see that like the way the world is skewed, you know, winners versus losers. That that's the way. That's that's the way it is because the winners are clearly better and more deserving. And that's why they're winners because they 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 are more deserving. Whereas people on the left see it more as, you know, that it's, we were all level playing field. We're all equal to begin with, and that the system itself is broken, and that's why people can't get ahead. Right. Yeah. And one of the most helpful ways to think about this idea that you're describing is a concept called belief in a just world, mm. which means uh, when we think that people overall deserve what they get and get what they deserve. Um, so there's a, also a range of the extent to which people agree with those kind of statements. And you can take it to very far extremes when you'll even look at horrible disasters yes, or awful acts of God, um, so to speak. As I spoke earlier, the earthquakes here because of the sinners in California. Right. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Yeah, the same thing. <laughs> the same thing in Iran. You had uh, mm. one of the top clerics over there after a devastating earthquake, who said that this had happened because women were dressing immodestly. Right. Or you had, um, you know, uh, one of the mo- very conservative right-wing religious figure in Israel. There was an, the worst forest fire they'd had in some uh, real tragedy, human tragedy. Said, well, the people in that region weren't obeying the Sabbath. And right. of course, in our own country here, you have um, some of these politicians on on the far right who um, look at the Middle East in general as mm-hmm. uh, an area of divine will. And yep. that oh, one of them said that Ariel Sharon was in a coma because uh, he had withdrawn from Gaza and that was going against the divine plan. Right. Um, and then on the other opposite end of the spectrum, you'll find people who sort of a, a victim mentality that uh, the the weaker party can do no wrong and it's always the fault of the system and um, not really looking at the idea of individual responsibility right um, that's a little bit more common uh, on the right so um, you know I never went into this project as I mentioned with any kind of uh, out of any activism it was always a search for truth yeah in the beginning that's and, what I that's what I love about this book is that you really you really stand in a place of you know let's look at the data. Mm-hmm. You know, which is just such a lovely, refreshing thing these days. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much, Kelly. That's yeah. just the fact that you're interested in data is important. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've, 
I've tried to get the, the top studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it have to be done well and following the scientific method and yeah. peer reviewed and so on. Yeah. But um, beyond that, uh, if it's a properly conducted study, my my attitude is let the chips fall where they may. So the parts of the book that might irritate people on the right or the left. And, yeah. Uh, please others, and the other one, other parts will ruffle the feathers of the other group, um, and but that's just how science works. And has and I believe that you know yes that it should h- hold the whole conversation and not be afraid that there's there if it really is science there's no agenda behind mm-hmm. it or underneath it right and that you're you're just you're holding up a mirror for us to look mm-hmm. at. And, you know, and I, being a person, I'm mostly a progressive person, have been my whole life. And, you know, and a lot of this stuff, I really related to the left, to the left side of it. But then there were other things, too, that I saw that was like, well, you know, this whole belief in a just world. I mean, I see more like a lot of my lefty progressive friends, you know, really believe in something called karma. Mm -hmm. And they talk a lot about, oh, well, you know, there's that's karma, you know. And I'm thinking... Well, you're kind of saying the same thing that Jerry Falwell's saying then. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's you're just you're yeah. just using it, you're talking about it from like a spiritual Buddha India yoga thing. Right. But you're it's the same you're and I realize I'm like, "Oh, I see the universe." Like I was really trying to think, like, do I in some ways I really do see that there is that some part of me believes that there is a just kind of divine you know way it should be and then certainly other parts of it depending on how what i'm looking at really believe that you know the system is really fucked up and mm-hmm. and that it's it's all broken because of that and that we've been damaged by civilization and i was found myself agreeing you know at one point with hobbes and another point with rousseau it was really confusing <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that's a good sign for sure. Uh, you know, I I I, I hope to I, I love being able to hold opposing views at the same time, and, mm-hmm. and because I think that's a sign of I've been told intelligence and uh, and and maturity. You know, that if you can be willing to do that, one of the things I, when I was taking notes today, I was really noticing like, you know, like all of the hot button issues in our culture and this divisiveness right now, it's not surprising to me now that after reading your book, when I see that a abortion is another hot one that's been happening again, and it's really hot this week again, um, uh, abortion, uh, NSA and torture, which all is all underneath this umbrella where you talk about tolerance of inequality and, uh, tolerance of authority doing what it needs to do to get the job done, the hierarchy of that. Um, you know, the big conversation, all the big conversations we have and are having in particular in this part of the uh, part of our history, they really land underneath a lot of all of these umbrellas that you talk about, which have these very deep, deep, deep evolutionary shapings you know it's it's yeah and yet we sit here talk, yelling about waterboarding mm-hmm. when it's it's not about the waterboarding it's the fact that some people believe that you know people have to do what people have to do to get information and other people believe that this is a completely unjust you know that people shouldn't have that much power over other people you know and mm-hmm. Um, that's the real conversation, but, you know. Yeah, and the amazing thing is that people's attitudes toward inequality and authority in, in society 
have very little to do with their own place in that society. Yeah. So it's super easy. You can just look at people's incomes and see that their attitudes toward redistrib- uh, economic redistribution or what you call uh, uh, you know, fisc- their, fisc- their, their place on the fiscal uh, right. policy spectrum um, has nothing at all to do with where, where they how, um, whether they're haves or have-nots or income yes. bracket. Um, but it has everything to do with a whole parallel set of attitudes toward inequality and authority within the family. Mm. And, and things that you don't normally think about, like birth order, um, actually exerts a little bit of influence. Um, I don't want to overemphasize that because there's a whole lot of other things going on. But it does influence how we feel about uh, inequality when you look at big numbers and um, I mean, this is just fascinating. And I w- I'd like to go back, to actually, to what you were saying before about karma. Uh-huh, yeah. So before I was criticizing people like evolutionary psychologists or just people in general who say, oh. um, another way I thought of it is that all these scientific findings that have been buried um, and isolated, they're kind of like a little firefly that goes off in the dark, mm. and it just leaves a brief trace uh, in the darkness of our understanding of our of, as our nature as political animals, what I've tried to do is take them all out at once and connect the dots to to shed light on on this. And even though I went into this as a, a search for truth, and um, I found unexpectedly that it's been a tremendously liberating process. Um, you know, sometimes I think about it as being like a visiting biologist from some other place <laughs> looking at this funny species called Homo sapiens. Yeah, measuring personality and yeah. what does that have to do with their political views and how how, how would um, how does would nature think about this? Of course, you can't think of nature as having intention, but if you thought of nature as having some kind of consciousness, and, yeah, or the universe is watching things over perspective that completely go beyond what we could see, and how are groups reproducing and um, and so on, and their reproductive and, and um, success over all, all these generations we can't think about. Um, what's, what's going on? I mean, we think about uh, things in religious topics. You know, should I eat this or not eat this? Or um, in different religious traditions. Or um, And, of course, uh, people live in these human worlds. But in the big picture, uh, there are also um, like certain reproductive barriers that are happening in totally non-random ways, mm-hmm. but whether it's uh, caste or a religious sect or different different kinds of, um, you know, kosher eating right, uh, yeah. for different, different populations that lived in different, you know, countries. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been very liberating to take a step back and look at all of these things. And I'm really optimistic that the book that our political nature will help people. Um, and, and this is, just to put this in perspective, I think it's actually part of the solution to the bigger problem. Um, the bigger problem we have is this long-term polarization in our country. Mm-hmm. It got a lot worse after 2008 because of the economic reasons that we talked about. But um, that doesn't really explain the long-term trend, which goes back about 50 years you know, it started, polarization started getting worse in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Really took off in the 80s, um, where you had only a quarter of people voting for president in one party and then a legislator in another. <clears throat> and then th- this number dropped down, plummeted all the way down to <clears throat> 11%. Uh, 
um, in, in recent years. And polarization in the house has actually reached uh, record levels, mm. even worse than it was in the aftermath of the Civil War at the end mm. of the 19th century. And so basically what's happened, part, part of the reason is this is occurring simultaneously with people getting more and more educated. Mm-hmm. Um, education rates went up a lot, especially for um, higher education. And between 1960 and 2010, the proportion of women in our society who are getting a college education almost quintupled. Wow. Um, and this had completely unrelated uh, consequences that people haven't really thought about. One is that it turns out having more and more education is politically polarizing. Hmm. So people begin with a liberal disposition a little bit and get all this education, become much more liberal. Uh-huh. The same thing happens to some extent with conservatives. Uh-huh. And the second side effect has been having more education makes you much more mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the 80s and 90s, it was about f- uh, 45% of people with a college degree moved out of their state within five years. Mm. So you've got all these more ideological and more mobile people. And you see this this big sort, which was um, described in a, a book a number of years ago, that our, our counties and even our neighborhoods are becoming more and more politically homogeneous. Yes. Um, so that's kind of old news, but the, the new twist here, um, which I talk about in our political nature, is it turns out that there's an evolutionary logic that's driving this. Um, you know, even, even though people, uh, there's liberals and conservatives and inbreeding and outbreeding, and, uh, if you look at the really big picture, people tend to uh, marry and reproduce with people who are a little bit more similar to them than you would expect it at random. Mm-hmm. So most people are inbreeding a little bit just because it's not random. Right. Um, and this relates to everything that you could think of, everything they measured, uh, everything from like earlobes and neck circumference and wow. education <laughs> and um, personality traits like extroversion. Uh-huh. But most of these correlations are very, very small, very weak. They're statistically significant, so know that there's, they're happening. Right. Um, but there's a couple exceptions where they are very strong. In fact, one of the strongest correlations of all that we, we found between spouses is political orientation. Hmm. It's tremendously strong. In fact, the only thing stronger is church attendance, hmm. which, as I show in one of the chapters, is um, like the, you know the sister component of tribalism along with ethnocentrism. <laughs> so it's really part of the same family there. Um, and, and that's part of what's driving this. Now, if you put that together with the fact that political attitudes and orientation is quite highly heritable, um, and then you've got an issue, which is people are living with people more like them, they're reproducing, right? and this is going to have kind of a long-term cumulative effect. So there are some political psychologists um, like Rose McDermott and... Um, Peter Hitami uh, and one of their colleagues did a, a study and they actually made a simulation of our society with the distribution we have of left and right and with our current rates of, of mating. This is called, the biological term is called assortative mating. Uh-huh. Or if you want to be more specific, positive assortment because it's like birds of a feather kind of right. issue here. Um, and we know that this is actually a biological phenomenon because it's not that 
husbands and wives are growing more similar over many years, um, that's easy to cancel out. They're just not changing that much over time. They're, right. They're finding each other like that. Um, and, and anyway, they ran the simulation, and they, they found that at the current rates, over just five generations, there's substantial um, broadening and flattening of our spectrum, meaning that there's going to be more political radicals and, and fewer moderates, and this goes on another 20 generations uh, a little bit before it sort of stabilizes. Um, and all of this is to say, to, to get back to the point, that education's a wonderful thing, and it's important, <laughs> but just having more of it and having more, you know, we're, we're in this, like, information overload yeah. society, and that's great because uh, we have more voice, more public opinion. Um, but the flip side of that is, um, you know, if you're like a political junkie and you, mm-hmm. can, you can live in your bubble and it, it, it polarizes you. And so we, yeah. need, we really need to focus on other kinds of education, um, like looking at some of these new studies on political orientation that has the, the whole opposite effect of creating deeper understandings, um, and, and the more you get into the studies that are in uh, our political nature, you, you really find that it, it brings out a political moderation. And um, so I'm optimistic that that will play a small role in advancing this process and um, really excited to be able to share it with readers and um, have them put on these evolutionary goggles, <laughs> right? Like our, these totally new lenses to help them see the ways in which the evolutionary history of our species is intimately connected um, not only to our whole political reality, but even to funny things about our private lives, mm-hmm. like how we choose uh, a spouse and all, you know, there's all kinds of funny little findings and yeah. details in there about these things. Yeah. God, it's, it's really fascinating what you were talking about that, um, the flattening out of, of the center of the, the bell, the moderates and it, um, the, 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 the more extremes happening and that and that here it is it's uh based on education that's just i i didn't get to that part of that's that's just fascinating to me because you know one of the big complaints i think of people well, i hear it on people from the left all the time is that you know if if people would just get a better education in this country then they would yeah. know the facts more and then they would vote more progressive and yet what i'm hearing is is that it, that really doesn't matter because it just kind of coalesces wh- where you're already you're already at in some ways and and then of course i think about well you know with the cost of education going up avi and um and education really people getting less and less interested in it that maybe it maybe it'll sort itself out in some ways and we'll become less educated in the next few generations or something (laughs) 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 i mean who knows really you know but uh yeah yeah. so so what is what you know i mean i know you're a scientist and you're not an you're not an activist and you're you know and i love that you've that also that it's helped you and and I, and I agree i mean i think people like you and who and books like yours really do help all of us to step out off the planet a little bit and say okay what's the really giant picture here and let's you know let's stop pointing fingers directly at people's faces and being nasty to each other and let's let's look at this big overall narrative 
mm-hmm. you know, of humanity, which is, is fascinating. And it is a relief. And yet, here we are living our life in the 21st century here in this very interesting times. And um, so as a citizen, how do you how do you hold all of this for yourself now? Do you, um, you know, what, what do you recommend for people who, uh, you know, besides reading your book, obviously, but Mm -hmm. um, you know, what's, what's the invitation here? What's, what's the invitation? So at the beginning, I I really wanted to stay away from making any recommendations. And then as the book was becoming, uh, when I was finished writing it, I was working on the conclusion and, I felt, well, it's funny, I had been keeping this little list just for my personal purposes of just a few little recommendations, and I decided at the last minute that I really should probably include them um, because maybe there would be some practical effect and, um, you know, they're just personal thoughts. Yeah. And, you know, I'd be happy to share a few of those. I would love that, yeah. Um, Yeah. beyond you know reading about this kind of things which i think is the main thing um, one thing if you go back to like this belief in a just world mm-hmm. uh, th- there's some some of this is is a mystery we, we really can't know a lot of times or we can't judge uh, unless you have a lot of information what parts of life are fair and what parts are unfair mm-hmm. and um definitely both of those situations exist um (laughs) right like sometimes (laughs) beautifully put (laughs) some people have incredible talent and um you know like to play sports or Mm -hmm. talent comes in all different shades and there's you've got incredible geniuses in the arts or in science and so on um and you know some of those people are geniuses and they that's they, they have extraordinary talents to contribute and um, it's not, they're not just interchangeable. Right. Um, on the other hand, there's a hu- there are huge injustices in the world. There's a huge amount of human potential that's being squandered and wasted. And people denied an education or a quality education. Um, and that's really a shame and it's a loss for all of us because who knows where, you know, the next um, great scientist could cure a disease. Maybe we'll never wind up getting an education. Yeah. So, I think we need to um, not just have a knee-jerk reaction to things that are always fair, they're always unfair, and really um, be a little bit more agnostic or look for more information. Mm-hmm. Um, be, you know, and, and another thing I'm, I talk about is cutting down on political junk food. Yes, um, people just kind of watch this the same TV. Station <laughs> or, um, yeah. You know, a lot of these things are, are designed to tickle the partisan fancies of people yeah to make certain parts of your brain light up yeah it has nothing to do with really trying to understand the future yeah. you know and, and and you know governments or large companies and investors who really want to predict what's going to happen in the future they're, they're not um well they, or they shouldn't be watching these shows they're uh hiring professional analysts right um to, to look at things so we're doing real scenario looking yeah, yeah. right exactly the, the real yeah um you know, geopolitical analysis, not just what's this commentator's opinion (laughs) with dubious track record. um, So there's a real difference between some of these shows and the Mm -hmm. emotional part, this kind of infotainment and um, a serious analysis. And there are a couple other recommendations 
that I put in there too. And it's just occurring to me that there's a bit of a paradox um, when you look at the big picture here. Uh, on the one hand, I think just reading through all this material has this effect where it makes us more tolerant. We realize that even though there's tremendous variation, we're all humans. Mm -hmm. And I really do sincerely think that it's possible to transcend these, what are just predispositions. They don't need to be walls of stone. Yeah. And, and the great thing about our country and about democracy is it's based on individuals. And we all have our hopes and our dreams. And, and we all um, get to make choice every day. We all get to make choice. And when you only focus on uh, these huge numbers and you see trends and the, the underlying structure, of course, there's a structure. But when you get to the level of the individual, there's a lot more mystery and a, um, a lot more free will. Maybe not quite as much as we'd like to think, mm -hmm. um, and it damages our narcissism when <laughs> you even say that half of things aren't completely under our control. It's, we're like a little <laughs> child and uh, stomping our feet, um, and a lot of people don't even want to give give up half of that control. And then, and then, but of course, there are people who give away all of it, and that's not healthy either. So we we must believe in in free will. Um, we must maximize whatever amount we have. Uh, I believe. And um, and to go back to the other idea, we, 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 I think reading through this does make us more tolerant, which is a good thing, um, and appreciate different points of views, and to realize when our biases are helping and when they're hindering, when they're a mm -hmm. handicap, mm -hmm. preventing us from really seeing a situation. Because you know sometimes it's one way and sometimes it's another, mm. and um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's like anything. It's like investing. There, there are people who are always. Uh, expecting, you know, this kind of market or that kind of market. And you, you really need to be able to see things in, in two ways. Now, the paradoxical part that I mentioned is um, that human nature is a big thing. And is what, <laughs> one of my readers said, um, that one of the most flattering things they've said about the book is that it reveals human nature and all its shame and glory. Yeah. And gosh, I, I just, I love that phrase. I love the entire... Um, every word that that school teacher from Illinois wrote, and it's on it's on my website, mm. which is ourpoliticalnature.com. Mm. Um, Teresa, I'm forgetting her last name, but I love that phrase. All its shame and glory, because there, there are just parts of the book that are uncomfortable to read. Yeah, there are parts that are uncomfortable to research, and um, but they're undeniable. And so I look at things like you know genocide or or rape in terms of statistics, and and they're just painful and we kind of put them away in a little box like that's inhuman it's um it's a crime against humanity it's outside right of who we are and in fact um sadly this is a you know i wanted to kind of shorten the book make it easier to read and but i, I just couldn't take out parts like this um it would just be you know an injustice to um you know unfortunately war and um violence and these things are part of the picture. It is, it is part of the picture. It is, it is part of the, the, the shame part. Yeah, and it yeah. Is, exactly. And yeah. so is political extremism. So here's the paradoxical part. There, there, there is a line where we shouldn't be tolerant and we shouldn't accept right. um, political extremism when you know we should know better, we should remember history, not make the same mistakes. Yeah. Um, so I think th this kind of tears at the soul a little bit. Um, and so that's a big, important question that we, we should be discussing is um, where should we draw the line? And, you know, yeah. I don't want to get too much into this issue, but I think uh, one issue that we have in this country um, 
is with free speech. We're free speech fundamentalists, and we have so much confidence that that's the way it must be because it was in the Constitution, which um, might as well have come down from you know Mount right. Sinai. It's like this uh, immaculate document, and um, and that's the way it has to be forever, ever, and ever. And of course, there are huge dangers to not having free speech, but uh, there's certainly times when I think you could be a little bit more reasonable about the rights of the individual balancing it against the rights of, of the group where one guy's right to say something is risking other people getting killed is um, Yeah, I mean there there are yeah. There are limits on free speech in this country. Yeah. I mean so, we, well that's a whole other discussion. It's a whole other issue. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, we 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 have to, we're running out of time here but um but yeah, I think uh I think really what I've come away f- with with all of from all of this is that it is that it is that thing about awareness you know that willing like you said willing to look at yourself and your own biases and when they work for you and when they work against you and and really really being aware of where you are on all of these spectrums and and what your natural propensity is and how that serves like you said sometimes it does serve the individual and sometimes it serves the whole. And we're in a constant balance of that, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, like, you know, any kind of extreme, anything is wrong. If you're just serving yourself, it's wrong. And if you're just serving the collective, it's wrong, you know? And if you're just doing it this way, that there is, you know, moderation might not be sexy, mm-hmm. but it's ultimately what uh, keeps us alive. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's the reality of it. Um, so so thank you. Thank you for coming here. And thank you for writing this book. And everyone, please visit his website, um, ourpoliticalnature.com. Check out his book, read his book, uh, f- you know, go see him when he talks somewhere. And uh, yeah, just uh, fascinating. Fascinating. I mean, we just, you know, we just touch the surface of this stuff um so thank thank you for being here thank you so much kelly and uh thank you logan for uh coming around today and uh everyone we'll be back next week we're going to do another show we'll have a an octagon table discussion don't know who don't know what it'll be about um, but it will be next week. Um, and, uh, and also, um, a neck, the first Sunday of February on Sirius XM, my Sirius show, I will have Wendy Liebman as my interview E. Uh, so catch me on there too. And everyone have a great week. And we're going to end with another Alan Stone song. What's this one called? What I've seen. What I've seen. Great title. Everyone have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Politicians manipulate mind. Public opinion is either left or it's right. No progression, we just argue and fight. For centuries, we've been digging, divide. And every time I open my eyes, 
This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio. Sir, only at Smodcast.com.